How's it going, Seth? How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Jonathan? You know, I'm doing okay. I'm getting a little emotional. You know, a lot of transition right now. Uh, this is actually, this and the next episode are the last ones I'm recording in this room, in our house in Ashland, Virginia, because we're moving. I'm trying to be really intentional because I'm noticing a lot of grief in myself during this time. And I'm really grateful for this room for many reasons, but mostly because it's where for all but like four of our episodes of the show, we've been in conversation about something really sacred and important to us. And I'm really grateful for this room for providing the space for that. I'm thankful for that room too. And the way that it has facilitated us doing this. Let's kick this off with a great episode. Two great episodes. Let's do it. Well, on a very abrupt change of tone, what would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to have a hand full of thumbs or a foot full of big toes? Yeah, that wasn't where I thought it was going. <laughs> I'm going foot full of big toes because it'll be hard to buy shoes, but when I do, nobody will see them and know that I have a foot full of big toes. Do you have an opposition to a handful of thumbs? Is it just that people would see it and yeah. be freaked out? Because <laughs> I, I think it would be just as functional. Maybe. As like, I mean, because your thumb's like shorter, so it might be... yeah. That might be and your thumbs only have your thumb only has uh, two joints as opposed to three in your other fingers too, at least. True. For folks with hands like mine, yeah, I don't know my, how my different that like would be. Pretty, yeah, my thumb I can I can move it a lot though. It has a lot of articulation based on the yeah. thumb only having three two joints instead of three. I think I'm still with you though. Because I actually think having a lot of big toes could be advantageous. Because, like, your big toe is central to your ability to balance. It's pretty strong. And I think, whereas thumbs, it's kind of a question mark, I actually think having more big toes might be advantageous in some way. Like like with picking stuff up? Maybe. Sure, I wonder if it would help you, like, if you were a gymnast... You could be on, like, the balance beam or something. Just, like, grip it. Yeah, because you're talking about balance. Like, your balance would be really good. Well, I guess we'll never know. But we can dream. It's kind of a shame. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Try and redeem this, Seth. And why don't you pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for us? I'll do my best. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just like Jonathan said. Verses 19 to 31 from the message. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine I telling hand, get lost, I don't need you, or hand telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. 
As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower part, the more basic and therefore necessary. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's a part of your own body you're concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is, without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of that body does your part mean anything. You're familiar with some of the parts that God has formed in his church, which is his body. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, healers, helpers, organizers, those who pray in tongues. But it's obvious by now, isn't it, that Christ's church is a complete body and not a gigantic unidimensional part. It's not all apostle, not all prophet, not all miracle worker, not all healer, not all prayer in tongues, not all interpreter of tongues. And yet some of you keep competing for so-called important parts. But now I want to lay out a better way for you. There's some great lines in there. There certainly are. And I'm curious to hear as you read through that, what stood out to you the most? If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? That's amazing. As, as someone who I know is also concerned about the state of their hairline, I imagine that you, like me, were not actually sure of the answer to that rhetorical question. <laughs> That's totally true. Because I, I had the same, the same thought process as the thumbs for fingers and big toe for all my other toes. I was like, well, if I had bad digestion, nobody would know. I could hide it. <laughs> yeah. That's a good line. He does a great job in this. Yeah, this is just, I just couldn't get away from this paraphrase of this passage for getting into this metaphor and to follow up from, you know, this passage that we encountered in our last episode from earlier in this chapter. It just was so compelling to me. And thank you for reading it so well, too. But beyond some of the funny wording... <laughs> Was there anything else that stood out as maybe profound or something that struck you different? Because I know you might be familiar with this passage too. I like his line toward the beginning. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. I just, I mean, it's pretty shocking language, I think. But I just wonder like if that isn't, if that isn't totally true about churches that are like all where everyone's trying to be the prophet 
Or everybody's trying to be the healer. Like, it's just like, it's a mess. Like, it's, yeah. I don't know, it's like scary. Just like, what is going on? Like, right. Well, a couple uh, things come to mind for that for me. First thing is from Super Smash Brothers, the Master Hand character. Where it's just this like big, imposing, disembodied hand that just usually slaps the crap out of whoever it's fighting. <laughs> um, that's what came to mind. But I'm also, I think you're exactly right that there is, there is not just beauty in difference and diversity. There's also real danger in sameness, right? You know, it's, yeah. I think it might become stereotypical that, you know, if you have a movie about a, a cult or something like that, that, you know, people might be dressing the same or, you know, speaking the same way or anything like that. But in reality, like the experiences like that where people are taken advantage of, people are abused, sameness and uniformity are not just encouraged, it's like necessary to belong to that community. And I think it's, I don't think it's an accident either that we're already getting to some of the ways that this passage kind of digs up some real significant pain that has come at the hands of the church too. But we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, how does the image of, just generally, you know, the image of the body of Christ land with you? Because last week, as we looked at the passage just before this, we learned about a community that was clearly aware of spiritual gifts, but was struggling to recognize all the gifts as valuable, right? And, it, it, you know, Paul, before this, laid out to this community that he loves in Corinth, all these different types of gifts. And now he kind of solidifies what that variety, what that diversity, what that difference, what it means. And he uses the imagery of the body. And I'm just curious to hear how that, how that lands with you. Like how, do you how do you process or, or think about this image? Do you use it often? Whenever we have images of bodies, I just th- I always think it can be problematic. Because, like, what if there are people who, for any number of reasons, don't have hands or limbs or... For me, it's always interesting when I read, can you imagine I telling hand, get lost, I don't need you? Because, like, my (laughs) eyes are pretty bad. Right. So I'm like, well, my eye would never say that. Like, especially for me in the... If I take my glasses off, you know, like I'm going to bed or something, because I wear mine constantly, I... I find myself like feeling around mm. for things. Like I take them off at night and then I like feel for the bed. I'm like, okay, this is where I have to go. So it's interesting. I think that gives me a different perspective mm. because I, I guess with Paul's rhetorical question, can you imagine I telling hand get lost? I don't need you. I'm like, no, definitely not. <laughs> like, like when I take my glasses off, I need my hands yeah. just as much as my eyes. Yeah, and it's like, you know, we talk about this all the time, but our ability to interpret scripture, to read the Bible and make sense of it, is intrinsically connected. You cannot separate it from how our lenses operate and the context in which we operate, too. And in a context that 
is ableist, that values certain bodies and certain levels of ability over others, this passage has consistently been interpreted that way. Because people often communicate the idea of the body of Christ as the, you know, the body of some of the Olympic athletes that we're getting ready to see compete in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, these top-notch, <laughs> perfectly chiseled <laughs> and sculpted bodies that don't have flaws, that have, as we would understand it even from just a medical perspective, have like fully functioning parts across the board. And I don't think that's a helpful way of understanding this passage. And really, Seth, I think that your reflection on your own experience, and I could think of ways for my own too, the fact that our bodies hurt and ache and struggle to do what they're allegedly supposed to do, I think makes this image so much more profound. You know, Seth, I'm 27 years old and my knees hurt. (laughs) They've been carrying around a lot of weight for a lot of time. Can my knees say to my arms, no, I don't need you. No. Like if I'm standing up, I usually need to put my weight on something with my arms to help my knees do their job. (laughs) And that level of interdependence feels so much more consistent with the spirit of what Paul's trying to write here is not that the body is perfect, this perfectly oiled machine, but because of the ways that the body is challenged to operate as any individual piece or part, it is truly its interdependence that makes it even functional, whatever that function looks like. I often hear this passage discussed in terms of uniformity and unity and their their differences, which I think is helpful. I think that's like one of, I think that's, in the background of what you've been talking about. It's not that your arms and knees are doing the same job, but that they're working in together. They're complementing each other. There's like a unity to their purpose. Well, Seth, you, you highlight an important piece too, because like we said, this, this image is beautiful. And I, I'm thinking back to my systematic theology course, kind of one of the hallmark courses of the seminary experiences at Wesley with my professor who I just adore, Safi Clark. And when we were talking about the church, he asked us to talk about what the church, like what images of the church do we value the most? And I said this one, uh, because I, I think there is a way to interpret this passage that again highlights mutuality, that highlights connection and interdependence, that highlights real community. And it's so quickly, so out of hand, as only a systematic theologian could do. He's just like, eh, I don't like that one as much. And he's told me why, and it's really stuck with me. How many times have we been in communities where people who claim to be the important parts say that others can only be the less important parts? Hmm. Hmm. And I think, Seth, this this transitions in my mind to a conversation about a point of this text, because I think we go in a ton of different directions, but we seem to be resonating with this theme and experience. 
We are recording this on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It has a complicated existence in our culture, in our country. (laughs) Um, In a lot of ways, it memorializing Reverend Dr. King, it has neutralized a lot of his message that as a prophet in the American context got him killed. But he often talked about the idea, the goal of it all is the idea of the beloved community. That whenever he talked about restoration, whenever he talked about reconciliation, whenever he talked about redemption, it was not just some far off pipe dream, (laughs) a hope for eternity. It was a vision of eternity come infused with the very fabric of earth. And another incredible teacher and writer who recently passed away, Bell Hooks, wrote this quote about the beloved community that I think is really appropriate for our conversation. And Bell Hooks says, if we want a beloved community, we must stand for justice and have recognition for difference without attaching difference to privilege. For me, that sounds like a really succinct summary of the passage that we are exploring tonight. Having recognition for difference without attaching difference to privilege. So I think we're highlighting a tension here, right? The tension of this image of the body of Christ that's biblical, that has some good foundation, but it's coming in conflict with our lived experience. And so I'm curious to think about what you think this metaphor this image of how the church ought to be how the beloved community ought to be how do we still put this into practice while resisting the broken ways our world and our church seems to still favor some body parts while oppressing others well i don't want to take our passage too literally Hmm. but i think for people who have a seemingly very privileged position like you and I, it's easy to imagine ourselves as as the I or as the head. Because that's what society has, has told us probably since we were born. It's easy to say the same thing that the I tells the hand. Get lost. I don't need you. That somehow our privilege can be so insulating that we think we don't need other people anymore that we got where we are just from our own ability intellect strength and we end up just like pushing pushing other people away pushing them down like pushing them out of bind like what happens is like we think that it's been all about us the whole time we end up saying get lost i don't need you but in reality like we needed them all along we still do it's not like when you get to the top you can ever be there alone right at least in this passage the order seems to tell us that actually the best part is the lower part like you can't build a pyramid and leave out the base right Mm -hmm. it's like that's not how it works so when people get to the top then somehow there's like a switch that changes i think and i'll this is this is from my own kind of lived experience working in in like a 
a semi-corporate job that like people get to the top and then they're like, okay, don't need any of you peons at the bottom. <laughs> like, it's, like that's obviously not true. Like, like that, that's who helped people get to the top. And that's who's really important. I always think of, like, if you have a big business, you may have no idea if the CEO's not there one day. Like, they're on vacation. Or they, like, flew across the country for some meeting. Yeah. But everybody knows immediately if the janitorial staff is not there that day. When, like, the trash piles up in the office... And there's like dust around. It's like dirty. Like people notice immediately. Because that's really, that person is the boss, maybe I should say. You're right to highlight that reversal here, though. Because I think in the more traditional translations, we hear more something about the parts that are given the lowest status are actually given the greatest honor. That reversal is part of this connective experience. And I. I am also struck not only that we as the church are called to be a body, but this body is Christ's. You know, we're coming out of the Christmas season where Christ's ministry in the world depended on a body. Or at least we revisit the story of that body coming to be among us. But there's this moment at the beginning of Acts that stands out to me where... The disciples are around the resurrected Jesus, and they're basically like, "So Jesus, are you going to restore? You going to restore Israel now? Are you going to do everything that we know you're supposed to do?" And Jesus says, "Nah, you got it." <laughs> I mean, that, that might be an oversimplification of the, the the sending out that comes in Acts chapter one, but if anyone could say get lost. I don't need you. It's God. Hmm. And yet, in a surprise, in a reversal, God says, my work now depends on you. (laughs) The continued work of making Jesus's ministry real and tangible in the world is no longer the body of a baby born in Bethlehem. But it's a body made up of you and me and so many people we know and love and so many people that we know and find it really hard to love. And (laughs) all of us in this body that aches and has pains and struggles, that's just so striking to me. Yeah, I'd used the sort of analogy of a corporate triangle with like a a CEO at the top and the C-suite and the mid-level workers and then... You know, people who who work in facility services at the bottom, but in both in Acts and in this passage, we just see like a complete collapsing of that. There's not that hierarchy that it, that exists in business. The same hierarchy we've ported onto our society. Both our relationships with each other and with God are are much more personal, mm. less business-like and yet those personal relationships bring about certain kind of business (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah they do it it is not relationship for the sake of relationship or maybe i should say it is not only that because i think that is central to the character of god's love Mm -hmm. 
I don't think God chose to love us. I do think God chose to need us. Hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way. But just thinking about the ways God has chosen to operate through the church and the world. That feels like a surprising, powerful choice rooted very deeply in who God is. Let's end on that note and pray. I would love that. Since I mentioned him for the first time today, too, I should mention that the way that I often close my prayers, the mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray. That line actually comes as well from Dr. Sophie Clark. (laughs) So even though we may be in some disagreement about how we view the body of Christ as an image representing the church, uh, his ministry and service has clearly had an impact on me, and I'm very grateful for that. With all that, can I pray for us? I would absolutely love that. God of bodies, you see our bodies and call them good. And you also see the parts we play in our communities, another type of body, and show us how we can work together for your purposes in the world. Help us to work with you and each other with deep, overwhelming love. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one whose body was pierced for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Next week, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. But until then, thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. Like, like with picking stuff up? Maybe. <laughs> or when you get that pedicure, your feet are just going to look that much better. Because let's be honest, your big toenail... If you're going to go get a pedicure with your foot full of big toes. You no, know I am. And if they say anything about it, I'm taking my toes and my business elsewhere. <laughs> but you know that your big toenail is like the only one that has a chance of looking like relatively presentable because like your pinky toenail is like that's true it's like growing on the side of your toe and is usually cut into like the shape of a rhombus or a triangle or something like that it's like how can you do any better your toes would look great man because you just have more room for room to work with